everybody, and welcome to the second episode of The Way I See It. In this podcast, I, Rory Beals, will be discussing current events, including politics, pop culture, the sciences, etc., etc., all through the lens of someone who is a part of Gen Z. And I'm going to talk about what these mean for our present and what they mean for our future. Uh, so today's episode is going to be focusing on the development of the coronavirus vaccine, sort of what's going on with that, a little bit of history that might give context to that, and then some of the uh, more significant implications of, of what's going on with it. So so what is happening with the vaccine? Uh, at this point, we are at around a year since the start of COVID in, in China, at least. Um, and interestingly enough, vaccines are almost ready to be approved, and that's sort of an absurd timeline, which you know, you'll know you see after we get a little bit more into that. Uh, the leading options for the vaccine are run by uh, Moderna, Pfizer, and AstraZeneca. AstraZeneca is kind of a distant third. It's not really worth worrying about right now, but it's primarily Pfizer and then Moderna. Uh, and Pfizer, and I think Moderna as well, are currently being reviewed by the FDA for emergency youth use authorization. Uh, but that takes a little bit because Pfizer's trial had 44,000 people and Moderna's had 30,000 people in their trial. And so that's kind of a ton of data to go over. Uh, but as for what the companies themselves have reported, Pfizer reported 95% efficacy of their vaccine and Moderna reported 94.1% efficacy. And all of this development is uh, driven by sort of a federal program called, uh, quote, Operation Warp Speed, which is a pretty fun name for a pretty serious topic. Uh, basically, what this did was give different um, it gave different vaccine companies and pharmaceutical companies like hundreds of millions of dollars, like grand totally billions of dollars, uh, out to these different companies who were attempting to manufacture the vaccine, uh, and this allowed them to move so much faster than usual because what usually happens is a company will start to develop a vaccine. And then they will have to sort of like prove that it's like pretty, you know, they have to gather some data initially that says like, hey, this might actually work. And then they're given money by different other companies, potentially the government in the past, uh, because like at that point, it's a, it's a worthwhile investment. But what the government did this time is that they just said, whoever's going to develop a vaccine, we're going to give you a ton of money. Um, so you don't have to worry about proving that it's good enough for funding. The only thing you need to prove is that it's good enough for the FDA. Uh, so money wasn't an issue so they could like run their trials uh, and at the same time be producing hundreds of millions of doses, even if like they aren't sure that it works. So uh, the Pfizer vaccine um, it has not been like readied by the FDA yet, but there are already hundreds of millions of doses ready to be distributed uh, to the population. Speaking of that, uh, we have the estimated timeline right now is that the approval of the initial vaccine uh, is going to be hopefully this month, December, uh, probably within maybe two weeks. And then the moment that happens, there's going to be tons of distribution of it, and that's going to continue into January. Uh, and so from this sort of December, January uh, distribution start date and then into April, it's going to be distributed distributed to the priority groups. And then from April to July, it's gonna be distributed for the rest of the general public. Um, and those priority groups I'm gonna to get to in a second. Uh, hopefully uh, by the end of 21, it's, it's sort of predicted that herd immunity uh, will be achieved if enough people get vaccinated, which again, I'll, I'll talk about later because that is sort of a, an if at this point, even though he, you think it wouldn't be, but it is. Uh, so in terms of the vaccine distribution, um, 
the CDC created an advisory committee on immunization practices. And so this is a federal group of people, and it's composed of a bunch of really smart scientists who were looking over at a, a bunch of data. And based on that data, they created sort of a, a recommendation for states to distribute the vaccine. Now, uh, the government can't, like the federal government doesn't have complete control over the like actual distribution of the vaccine, uh, but they sort of are giving out these recommendations to states and states for the most part are, are gonna take them. And so they created a bunch of different phases uh, to people. And the first one is phase 1A, and that is the vaccine going out to roughly 21 million health workers and 3 million residents and staff of nursing homes. And they decided on this because health workers are like exposed to COVID so much more than the average person, obviously. And then the the residents and staff of nursing homes was actually sort of an interesting choice uh, because a lot of those people are older. And so there's sort of this ethical dilemma of, do we give it to them because they're already such an elderly population? How much will it increase their lifespan if potentially younger people are gonna be dying? Yada, yada, yada. Uh, but they decided to give it to them because they have such a, such a high uh, mortality rate of people of that age. And obviously if the staff of a nursing home gets it, they're gonna, potentially give it to a lot of the elderly people there. Um, so there's some uneasiness over this decision, but uh, geriatric doctors, the ones who are primarily looking at this elderly population, uh, they, they agree with the recommendation. So that's phase 1A, and then phase 1B would be essential workers, and that is like a much larger group of people, roughly 86 million Americans. Uh, the qualification for essential worker is, is pretty broad. I mean, uh, this ranges you know, from people in restaurants to people uh, working in like Smiths and whatnot. Um, so it's, that's like a large portion of the adult population. Uh, and then for phase 1C, it's gonna be going out to adults with health concerns uh, and adults older than 65. And so that'll take care of most of the rest of sort of adult America. Uh, and then after that is is given out, that's when it's going to be just sort of released to the general public and people and uh, pretty much anyone can get it after that group gets it. And hopefully that'll start sort of like early to late spring and on into the summer. Um, and it was interesting looking over the, the presentation that the CDC made to sort of follow along uh, to, to figure out why they chose to give the vaccine to what groups and uh, what they they looked at was three main guidelines to figure out who is the best group to give it to, and that's science, implementation, and ethics. And so they made their decisions off of evaluating sort of the scientific feasibility, the implementation feasibility, and ethical feasibility of giving the vaccine to certain groups before other ones. So, for example, science, you know, they look at like where is it most effective, and it's uh, most effective pretty much on the whole population. Uh, so that one received full marks in like every category of people. Uh, but in particular, they're like, we could save a lot more lives of older people first. And that sort of contributed to the uh, nursing home decision to give it to the people in the nursing homes. Uh, an example for implementation um, is that essential workers had a lower desire to get vaccinated and it would be difficult to reach out to such a large spread of the, of the population. Um, right at the beginning of vaccine distribution. So they decided like we should hold off on that group of people until like phase 1B as uh, they eventually decided on. And then an ethical example uh, of, of that they had to take into consideration uh, was that adults with medical conditions uh, means that adults 
who have been diagnosed with medical conditions require access to medical care to get diagnosed. So people without access to medical care would have smaller access to vaccine, and that would sort of propagate uh, this unfortunate distribution of, of people in maybe rural communities or people in minority communities who have less access to health care. It means that they would be getting disproportionately uh, less access to the vaccine. And so they sort of had to take that into account while they were making um their decisions on that. And again, it should be noted that these are all recommendations by the federal government, by the CDC, by the CDC uh, and ultimately it's sort of states who have the choice to distribute how they want. But for the most part, states are, states are going along with it. The next piece that I wanted to take a look at in terms of vaccine development and something that I think adds a lot of good context to sort of what this vaccine development means uh, is the history of vaccine development. And I think it makes the most sense to look at probably the most well-known vaccine, and that is the one for the flu, uh, you know, more specifically influenza. And so looking back at the history of that, you start in 1918 when like the big famous primary influenza pandemic was, and that was the H1N1 strain of the influenza. And it's been later labeled influenza A. Uh, and that, that was pretty bad in the U.S. starting in 1918 and up into 1920. And it took until 1945 to, for there to be a vaccine for that. Uh, so that's 25 years without a vaccine. And yet the population back then still did all right after a little while, um, which I think is an interesting note on uh, sort of their desire and their willingness to make some small sacrifices in order to sort of subdue uh, this virus. Like they didn't get a vaccine for 25 years. The vaccine didn't end the pandemic uh, at all. It was just sort of a helpful thing that happened uh, later on. And then there were more waves of, of bad levels of the flu in the U.S. in 1957 and 1968. And those primarily happened because the influenza uh, flu has like a lot of different strains. And there's all these small variations that the original vaccine didn't account for. And so what that means now is that every spring, virologists sort of have to take a guess at what strain of the virus is going to be prominent during flu season, which is in the fall, and then they develop a vaccine to fight that. Uh, and this creates sort of an issue because they, they really are just guessing. They're like, I think it's going to be this strain that is going to be bad. So then they develop a vaccine tailored for that strain, uh, hopefully allowing the population to fight it in the fall. Uh, and in the past, they have been just really far off um, and just whiffed. And that can lead to a lot of people dying because the flu is no good. Um, but in general, they do pretty well. And so that leads to the flu vaccine having about a 70% efficacy rate on average, uh, which is interesting, like in context of the efficacy rate of the vaccines in development right now, we're like going through the FDA scrutiny, um, they had roughly 95% efficacy. So, I mean, it, this, this vaccine is supposedly going to be a lot better than the flu vaccine, but that doesn't account for the fact that uh, COVID right now, I think there's only a couple strains and all of the, all of the well, Moderna and Pfizer's vaccines have, have shown to fight pretty much all of those. Um, but, you know, there's always the chance for the virus to mutate. And then we have another flu situation where they kind of have to guess which strain. And that, that may end up being what is true in the future. Um, or this will be sort of like a, a mumps or measles situation where one vaccine just kind of knocks it out for a while. And we're, and we're going to hope it's that. 
Uh, and speaking of the mumps vaccine, that is actually the fastest vaccine to ever be developed um, in, in history. And that one took four years from 1963 to 1967. So even the fastest one in history took a solid four years. And here we are, you know, pretty much less than a year into this and like the time frame of the United States and we're and we're almost there. So it's it's pretty incredible what the scientists have been able to accomplish. Obviously it's helped that they've had so much money to back them up. And it's even more impressive because four years isn't the average, that's the fastest. The average is about ten to fifteen years. Uh, so that, you know, obviously is is a lot longer. And uh, it's nice to get a vaccine this quickly. Um, unfortunately, you know, it isn't happening super soon and still Hundreds of thousands of people have died and, uh, you know, millions of people had gotten it. Uh, and that was largely due to our, our lack of willingness to sort of take precautions uh, in order to fight the virus. We all just sort of wanted to wait for the vaccine, which is coming super fast, which is good. Um, and I'm grateful it is. But still still a lot of things that uh, were missed in terms of, in terms of fighting this. Um, and there are more issues of fighting this uh, pandemic in the future, even with the vaccine, because, you know, not everybody is going to take the vaccine. I think it's roughly a third of America who are anti-vax and don't plan on taking this, uh, which, which is sort of problematic because the effectiveness of a vaccine and why we take the vaccine is to reach sort of this place called herd immunity. And uh, by doing, like, once we reach that point, the virus, it, like, there aren't enough people for the virus to infect in order to continue spreading, and we effectively kill it. Um, and this was an argument sort of earlier on in the pandemic. There were some people out there saying that we should just all get the virus and then recover and then have immunity, and then that'll give us herd immunity really quickly. Uh, which, you know, makes sense in theory. The problem is, in order to achieve herd immunity, uh, you need about 75% of the population uh, to be immune. And so that's 75% of the population to get the virus. And operating with a mortality rate of, like, roughly 0.1%, um, that's not entirely accurate. It's a range depending on your age. But, it, you know, that's sort of, like, in that range. Uh, and so if you take 0.1% of 75% of the population, that's 2.7 million people dying. Uh, so that's not a uh, that's not a great plan in terms of saving as many lives as possible. I mean, evidently, we have 250,000-ish deaths at this point. And so uh, multiply that by 10 times, and that's how many deaths we'd have if, if people had decided to just all get it and become immune. And even with that, we don't even know for certain that people are immune after they get the virus. Uh, I mean, I think that's the idea for a couple months, and then they're sort of susceptible to it again uh, after three or four months, I believe. I'm not entirely sure on that, but, uh, you know, trying to get herd immunity through everybody being infected wouldn't work nearly as well as uh, some of the other precautions that we've been trying to implement and then having the vaccine come in later. Um, and in terms of vaccination, uh, a doctor, Amesh Adalja, with John Hopkins said that a good target for immunity would be about 70% vaccination rate. So you need about 70 to 75% of the population to be immune in order to reach herd immunity. Uh, but he also stated that it may need to be higher if the vaccine proves to be less effective than it, less effective than it has seemed so far. 
And this 70% target might be an issue right now because as of right now, only around 60% of Americans say that they are likely to get the vaccine. Uh, obviously, this would be helpful, but not completely effective for fully eliminating the spread of the virus. Uh, so we would like to see that number go up of people who are going to get the vaccine. And uh, I, I think it will um, as it proves to be more effective and as more and more people get it and they prove to be healthy, then I think people who are skeptical uh, might be more likely to get it in the future. Um, and one primary issue of people not getting it is the group of groups of people who are less likely to get the vaccine tend to be clumped geographically. So in one small town or another, one section of a city, yada, yada. And so what this means is you have a small contained population uh, that would like all be not vaccinated, which would lead to the same amount of spread that we would see in them, regardless of the vaccine in the rest of the United States. So if people were resistant to getting the vaccine after it was implemented, overall the country's uh, infection rate and death rate would go way down, but there would be these pockets of people not taking the vaccine who would still be experiencing really high levels of infection and potentially high levels of mortality. And in terms of like what this means for the future and sort of broader implication, uh, implications. I think this actually ties back into something that I was talking about last week about the consumability of information. Um, sort of how I was saying we need to uh, make political information and uh, sort of the dialect coming from courts and the law system to be more consumable by people. I think the same thing needs to be done with scientific information uh, because people who don't want to take the virus, I mean, they have kind of a solid reason not to, and that's because they have no idea what it is. Uh, people are just saying, we're going to inject you with this thing and it's going to make you healthy. And if you don't have a very strong understanding or strong trust of scientific information that you've been given, you know, you're not going to trust that. People are injecting you with God knows what. Um, and that and that is super scary. But I think if people understood how mRNA and antigens and antibodies all work, I think they would trust it more because they can see the logic and science behind it. Uh, which I, I think would be super helpful in getting more people willing to take the vaccine. And a large part of that comes from people with influence being more open about uh, vaccines and playing a bigger role in spreading it to people. So, for instance, the former presidents Obama, Bush, and Clinton have all said that they're going to get vaccinated on camera in order to sort of spread uh, a little bit more faith in this vaccine as they're going on. And I would like to see more of that even from people like celebrities and people of local influence. So local mayors and local governors, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And sort of just have this chain of people like really high influence people like Obama. And then it runs down to a celebrity and the celebrity runs down into maybe a smaller celebrity and their local following. And it, it gets to this point where everybody is like having the opportunity to look at somebody that they trust uh, and that they have faith in and see that they're taking the vaccine, they think, well, I believe in their brain power, I believe in their decision making, and they have decided to get the vaccine. Therefore, it makes sense that I should get the vaccine. And then you have sort of this culture of more people being willing uh, to get the vaccine. But that starts again with people being more educated on how they work. And again, that's so much easier when we have more simple language to be able to describe these concepts and more consumable information. And along with that, one more issue that I see is that the vaccination is going to be gradual. You know, as I outlined at the beginning, not everybody's getting vaccinated at the same time. 
So I think there there's there's a danger for this uh, sort of social implication where people are seeing other people get vaccinated and they're like, oh, pandemic is over. I'm going to go out and see my friends. I'm going to go eat indoors without a mask. I'm going to go to parties, yada, yada, yada. And even if like, even if they're not vaccinated. Um, so what, what that means is that like, even as people start to get vaccinated, there could be potentially another spike in cases as everybody else just sort of says, like calls it quits and is, you know, unsafe about uh, their behavior, regardless of whether or not they or the people they're with have been vaccinated. So it just all seems like right now, we all need to emphasize staying calm, staying careful, staying patient, and doing so will lead to a faster recovery uh, to normalcy and being able to function in like a normal social world. At least that's the way I see it. Thank you, everybody, for listening to the second episode of this podcast uh, regarding the vaccine development and what it means. My sources today were the Regulatory Affairs Professional Society, ABC News, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Business Insider, The Washington Post, and the CDC. Thank you so much for tuning in. I will catch you guys in the next episode.